Let's open again this morning to the precious letter to the Hebrews as we continue to look at our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5. You know, in our world, sources matter. They can be good or they can be bad, but we find ourselves constantly looking for sources. On the negative side, when we have a problem, we try to identify the source of that problem because we understand if we're going to resolve it, we have to cut it off at its source. But then on the positive side, when something is good or profitable, we do an analysis to figure out the source of those returns, hoping that we can tap further into that source and gain more of those good returns. But particularly on the positive side, when when it comes to sources in a fallen world, we have to recognize that our sources are inherently limited. Freshwater springs run dry, natural resources are used up, and even a good source of information on one topic may not be the best source of information on another. But what if there was an eternal source? And what if this eternal source was not a source of information or a natural resource like oil or gold or, or water, but it was a source of the most valuable resource in not only this life, but in the next? Well, that's exactly what we as believers have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures explain that he is an eternal source of the most valuable resource in existence, and that resource, of course, is salvation from the wrath of God. You know, false religions throughout history have made false claims that salvation is a limited resource, and they say that salvation is limited by your own failures. And so in order for you to make sure that you have enough salvation to cover your failures, you, your good has to outweigh your bad in the end. But the scriptures describe salvation from an entirely different point of view. The scriptures explain that Jesus Christ is the eternal source of an endless supply of salvation that is given to his people at the moment of justification and it will never be taken away. And he is the undeniable source of so great a salvation because he has earned it through his perfect life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father where he ministers even now as our great high priest. In our text this morning, the author of Hebrews will explain how exactly Christ earned this right to be our eternal source of salvation. You remember, of course, the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ, and we're looking at the superiority of Christ in the sense of the priesthood. He's superior to the old covenant priesthood in the Old Testament. This began in chapter 4, verse 14. It'll continue to the end of chapter 7. He began with the application. Let's look at the text in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, as he begins with the application of this great truth. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." There we're introduced to this great theme that we've been unpacking week after week. 
which is that as our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. He secures our salvation and supplies our strength. And there are two reactions that we ought to have to that truth that the author lays out in those verses at the end of chapter 4. We're to hold fast to faith and to draw near to God in prayer. And we've been unpacking those week after week. That is the application of this explanation of the priesthood of Christ. But the author then went on to explain what he means and and why he would say that Christ is our great high priest. In chapter 5, he began by explaining the role of the high priest under the Old Covenant. This is verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. There, he explains to us again what was required of the great or the high priest, and how then in the following verses, Jesus is, is abundantly qualified and even surpasses the high priest under the old covenant. That's explanation number two Jesus' credentials as high priest. He's beginning with the obvious question of what's required, and then he shows how Jesus surpasses that requirement. Let's look together at chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, just to remind ourselves of the context. This is what's required, or was required, of the high priest under the old covenant. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness, And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it, just as Aaron, when he was called by God. It's the end of verse 4. Here we see the priest's ministry, which consisted of sacrifice and identification. He, He had a ministry of representation. He went before, between the people and God. He brought sacrifices to God. But as it says here, he identified with the people, the priest under the old covenant, that is, even to the point of of experiencing sin, so that he had to offer sacrifice, not only for the people, but for himself. Then he explained the priest's appointment in verse 4, that this appointment has to be a divine appointment. No one can take the office of high priest to himself, but God must appoint him to that office, as he did Aaron and Aaron's descendants. That brings him then to prove, as we began last week, starting in verse 5, that Jesus Christ meets all of those credentials and in fact surpasses them. Let's read together our text from last week, verses 5 to 7. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety." We began there last week looking at Jesus' credentials as high priest. What we see here is that the author follows the exact same outline in these verses as he did in the first four. He just reverses the order. So he began by explaining Jesus' appointment, his superior appointment, that Jesus himself also was appointed by God to this role as high priest, but in his case, according to a different order entirely, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, I briefly explained who Melchizedek was last week. I won't go into that this morning. We're going to save that until we get to chapter 7. But you can go back to here last week if you missed that. But what's important to note about the appointment of Christ here before we move on is that this was not a temporary appointment, but an eternal appointment. Because he says here, look back at the text, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then we began to look at the second detail last week. We finished here with Jesus' superior ministry. And we looked first at his perfect identification. Like the, the other high priest, Jesus also identified with us, but his identification was superior because it was perfect. And in verse 7, the author explained that Jesus identified with our weaknesses to a level that goes beyond our comprehension. Because by reminding us of that night in which Jesus agonized in the garden, the night before his crucifixion, to, to that he agonized to the point that he cried out to God in prayer and, and actually sweated drops of blood. Jesus was, was tempted in that moment in a way that we've never been tempted with the internal emotions that come with stress to the highest levels. And yet, what did he do? He prayed, not my will, Father, but your will be done. If this is the way it has to be, then I will submit perfectly to your will and not my own. Therefore, he identified to the nth degree, and he did it perfectly. Now, that brings us to our text Today, verses 8 to 10, in which we close out the first part of this larger argument. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Here we look at the second aspect of Jesus' superior ministry, and it is this, perfect sacrifice. Perfect sacrifice. Just like the, the high priest under the Old Covenant identified with the people and made sacrifices for the people, Jesus identifies, but he does so perfectly, and Jesus makes a sacrifice, but he does so perfectly. He's going to describe Jesus' sacrifice with two different descriptions. And the first one is this. He suffered obediently. He suffered obediently. Verse 8. He begins, although he was a son. Although he was a son. Now this reminds us of the quote from Psalm chapter 2 that he quotes back in verse 5 of chapter 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's, he's bringing that idea back into play here. He's already uh, introduced this back in chapter 1. He proved to us Jesus is, in fact, the divine son of God, which means he is fully God himself. All of the attributes that are, are requisite of God, that belong to God, the Father, belong to the Son and the Spirit. And he brings this up here. Because it's our temptation to think that because Jesus is in this special status as the divine son of God, that perhaps that exempts him in his humanity from experiencing certain trials and difficulties that we experience. After all, in our human experience, if a person is born to royalty, 
or they're born to wealth or privilege, then that often spares them certain difficulties that the rest of us have to go through. And yet when it comes to Christ, nothing could be further from the truth. The author's point here in mentioning the sonship of Christ, the divinity of Christ, is to magnify the ministry of Christ by saying, yes, he was a son, fully God in every way, and yet that didn't exempt him from suffering. In fact, he experienced suffering to an unfathomable degree. And the way he's going to describe that is very unique. What he says in verse 8 here is, although he was a son, although that was true of him, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. Now that should strike us as unthinkable. It's intended to be unthinkable. He learned obedience. If Jesus is, and he is, the divine eternal son of God who, who, who possesses all the attributes of God, meaning he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, then the thought of Jesus learning anything is mind-boggling. What do you mean he learned obedience? And the fact that it's obedience that he apparently learned makes it even, even harder for us to grasp. What do you mean that the perfect son of God learned obedience? And yet the author means to say exactly what he says. And the point of this is to highlight the glory of Christ. He wants to take Christ in your mind and take him from wherever you have him and move him even further to give glory to him because the meaning of this, this idea that Jesus learned obedience, it's important to understand that this learning on the part of Christ is not birthed out of some need in Christ as if he actually needed to learn anything. It certainly doesn't indicate that Jesus used to be disobedient and he now has learned to be obedient. It doesn't mean that at all. It's not a judgment on the character of Christ. No, the point here is not some deficiency in Christ. In fact, in fact it's, it's quite the opposite. What's emphasized here is the fact that, that Christ, though he is the Son of God, though he is perfect, though he needs nothing, chose to take to himself humanity so that he could experience suffering in our place so that he could, he could experience suffering and do it perfectly and then offer that perfect life as a sacrifice for us. And we know that's what he means because he points now specifically to the way in which he learned this obedience, and it was through suffering. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What is this suffering? Some would say, well, it's, it's the entirety of his incarnate life and certainly that's true Jesus suffered just from the fact that he humbled himself and took on humanity that's certainly true but in context as we've looked at the this reference to the garden of Gethsemane I think now this this mention of his suffering is really his death it is that whole process of suffering that began that night as he agonized over what was to come and then he obediently followed that through all the way to the point of death on the cross so the question is how did that suffering teach the all-knowing Son of God obedience? Well, again, the meaning here is not that Christ gained new information. Instead, the emphasis in this description is that Christ learned obedience experientially. Experientially. Here's the point. The plan of redemption has been set in the mind of God, in the Godhead, for eternity past. 
It has always been God's plan to send his son to redeem a people for himself. But in order for that plan of redemption to be realized, Christ had to physically carry it out in real time. He, he, it, it was one thing to decree that that was going to happen. And, and in the mind of God, that, that was as good as done because he knew it was going to happen, but it had to actually happen. Jesus had to come, become a human being, go through all the steps of living a human life, a perfect human life, and then offering that perfect life as a sacrifice. That had to actually happen. And so when he says he learned obedience, he means experientially. He actually did it. He actually came and perfectly obeyed the Father every step of the way, all the way to and through the cross. The Apostle Paul describes this reality in that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, where he calls us to, to have the same attitude as Christ. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, eternally one with the Father, eternally one with the Spirit, therefore inherently worthy of all glory and praise for all eternity, willingly lays aside his glory in the sense that he takes to his divine nature a full human nature so that he can live a real human life, experience rejection, pain, torture, suffering, and yes, even the wrath of God for us. It's in that sense that Jesus learned obedience. He really did it. He really, truly lived it out. Now we need to think about this verse in the larger context of the argument that we're studying here in Hebrews. How does this connect to the big argument? Well, it connects in this way. The high priest under the old covenant, as we said, had a ministry that included both identification and sacrifice. And under the old covenant, those two were wrapped together. They came together because, remember, in his identification, the, the high priest under the, the line of Aaron also sinned. And so when he made sacrifice, he made sacrifices for the people and for himself. So his identification wrapped into his ministry of sacrifice because he had to offer sacrifices also for himself. But now, as we turn the lens to Jesus, we see that he also identified with us and had a ministry of sacrifice, and also those two come together. They are connected in the case of Christ, but the connection point is entirely different. This is where Christ's superiority comes into play. In the case of Christ, his identification with our weakness was characterized by perfect obedience, so that when he made his ministry of sacrifice, it was entirely for our benefit. And so it means something else as well. Unlike the high priest under the old covenant, when Jesus made a sacrifice for sins, he was the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for us. This takes his ministry of sacrifice to, to a level that, that no other high priest could ever even Imagine, Jesus came 
lived a perfect life, and then he took all of that righteousness that he had earned himself, and he offered it as a fragrant offering to the Father, so that the Father might take our our filth and our sin and place the guilt of that on Christ, and then take all of that righteousness and place it on us, those who are God's people. The high priest under the old covenant offered sacrifice for the people and himself, The perfect Son of God offered a sacrifice for the people that was Himself. And this is the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. And because His sacrifice was superior, the result of that sacrifice is also superior. And this brings us to a second description of His sacrificial ministry. Description number two, He saved eternally. He saved eternally. Look back at the text, verse 9. And having been made perfect. Now that also grabs us, just like the statement about him learning obedience should grab us. What does he mean here when he says, having been made perfect? Again, let me say, the point is not to suggest in the slightest some imperfection in Christ that needed perfecting. That's not the idea. Instead, the Greek word here can also mean completion. That's the idea here. In becoming perfect, that is, he became complete. Again, he actually did what God called him to do. He actually went through this perfect life and offered that life as a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews has already said this back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, this is God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus was perfected through suffering in the sense that he brought to completion that eternal plan of God that was settled in the mind of God in eternity past. There was nothing lacking in him. There was nothing lacking in the eternal plan of God. The eternal plan of redemption simply needed fulfillment. It just had to be accomplished. And so in that sense, he has been made perfect. He lived the life. He drank the cup down to the last drop. And we saw last week Jesus submitting himself in agony to the will of the Father. But from that moment, he set his face towards the cross and he went to the cross perfectly, willingly, freely offering his life for us. And the magnificent result of that perfection is this. Verse 9, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. There's so much wrapped into that phrase. We could camp here for weeks, but what we're going to do is just break it in half and look at the, the two halves of this statement, and then we'll bring them together. But he begins by saying, he became to all those who obey him. To all those who obey him. Now, in this one simple phrase, the offer of salvation is said to be both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. We see the inclusivity of salvation in the word all. He became to all who obey him. That is to say that there is no class or category of people who will be excluded from this salvation that's been purchased 
by Christ. Though Jesus was a Jew and he was prophesied to come through the bloodline of the Jews, he is always intended by God to be a Messiah for all the people. This was made clear all the way back to, to Abram when he, God gives the promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so from the beginning, this Savior has been a Savior who would redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's what's meant here with this word, all, for all. He is the eternal source of salvation. And yet at the same time, this offer of eternal salvation is exclusive. And it's exclusive here in the phrase, those who obey him. Those who obey him. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but there's a connection here between the response of Christ to the Father and the response of Christ's people to Christ. The Son submitted himself perfectly to the will of the Father and obeyed him even to the point of suffering a horrific death and taking the wrath of the Father on behalf of God's people. The Son loved the Father, and the love of the Son for the Father motivated obedience. Jesus says this himself in John 14. John 14, verses 30 to 31. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father commanded me. Here Jesus is declaring his love for the Father, but he's declaring something else. He's declaring not only that he loves the Father, but he wants the world to see it. He wants the world to know that he loves the Father. And how is it that he plans to display that love for the Father? It's by perfectly and meticulously doing everything that the Father has commanded. His perfect obedience then was motivated by his genuine love for the Father. As we said last week, the only thing more unthinkable for Christ than taking the wrath of God on himself was the thought of disobeying the Father's will because he loved the Father. It was unthinkable to do anything out of step with what the Father had commanded. And so we see that true love for God motivates and produces obedience to God's commands. And this is really important for us to understand. We have to get a hold of this because, unfortunately, many people read the words that we just read from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, and they immediately begin to try and explain them away. They can't possibly mean what they say because they're afraid that people will think that the author's teaching some works-based righteousness, some, some works-based salvation. But this is not a call to earn your way to heaven. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of that. The entire point of this passage is that Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed. And it's his righteousness that's offered to the Father, not ours. The only works-based salvation in this text is the works of Christ. So to read a call to obedience here as a reference to a works-based salvation misses the entire context of the passage. But at the same time, and this is what I want us to see. We can't too quickly dismiss this call to obedience because that also is a mistake. 
Because by emphasizing that it is those who obey who benefit from this eternal salvation that Christ has earned is intended to grab us by the shirt and wake us up this morning. It's to remind us again that there is such a thing as a false profession of faith and there's such a thing as a genuine profession of faith that results in eternal life. Remember in context, we we can't ever get too far away from this. Why is the author writing this letter to the Hebrews in the first place? Apparently, something's going on in that church in which the author is, is afraid legitimately that some of those professing Christians are on the edge of apostasy. There's something that is causing them to take their eyes off of Christ and to put it on something else. And that's why he keeps saying, look at Christ, look at Christ, and look again at Christ and how superior he is. And let your faith be made real and shown to be real as you look at Christ. And so it's with that in mind then that he calls us here to express our faith in the way that Christ expressed his faith and love for the Father through obedience. Understand this, this call of obedience as, as proof of our faith is no different than what Jesus himself said. In that same passage in John 14, listen to what Jesus says about our faith and works. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Listen, the scriptures could not be more clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is absolutely 100% true. But the scriptures are also equally clear that genuine faith by grace affects our life. It it, it results in a change in which now our affections are changed. We now love Christ, and that love propels our feet to move towards obedience. Let me ask you this morning, have you grown lazy in your pursuit of Christ? Does your genuine love for Christ propel you to choose obedience in the face of temptation? This is what the author is wanting to do, to wake us up, test yourselves. Are you running hard for the Lord? Have you begun to take your eyes off of the superior Christ? Put them back. Look at him and let your love for him demonstrate itself in obedience. This is the idea in verse 9. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. But now let's look at the second half of that phrase. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus has become then the only source of eternal salvation. That is to say, salvation springs from Jesus like like a fresh water spring that never runs out. He's a never-ending well of eternal salvation, and you can't find it anywhere else. The idea is the, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And yet while it's exclusive, it's also inclusive in the sense that it never runs out. Jesus is the only source, but for those who find that source, he's an eternal source. It's irrevocable. 
It's not momentary. Again, as we've said before, the, the, the ministry of sacrifice of the high priest under the old covenant was, was temporary. He made sacrifice for the sins that had been previously committed. But tomorrow, there'll be a whole new list of sins that need to be re-sacrificed for. That's not what Christ has done. He has, in that one act of dying on the cross, become the source of an eternal salvation that is forever. Sins previously committed, present and future. It's inexhaustible. You know, as I thought about this, I was reminded of how Jesus spoke of himself. When Jesus preached the gospel to others, he spoke of himself in this way, as being this inexhaustible well of living water. Think back with me to his, his wonderful conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. Let's look at John 4, verses 7 to 14, and look at the connection here of how he describes himself and how he's described here in Hebrews. John 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Now connect this in your mind with this description of Jesus with the description of him in Hebrews as this source of eternal life. Jesus points to himself as the source, and he, he does that with the illustration of this well, and this well that could potentially run dry at some point. He says, I have water to offer you that will never run dry. He calls it living water. And what he means by living water is explained in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to what? Eternal life. It's a description of eternal life, eternal salvation that Jesus was offering to this woman there at the well. It's like a, a never-ending freshwater spring. No sooner have you finished the first gulp that there is another there and another and another, and it will always be because Jesus is the source of of eternal salvation, that there is no list of sins that you can offer that can't be atoned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and once that living water of eternal salvation is given, it can never be revoked. That's because the atonement of Christ has purchased for us redemption that is instantaneous and eternal at the same time. You might say, well, how can we be sure of that? How can I have such confidence that my sins really are eternally, irrevocably washed away? Well, the confidence comes from the conclusion here in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Being designated by God 
as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he wraps it back in. He's going to end where he began. He announced that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He explains that, and now he's going to again bring us back to the significance of that. And here's the significance. How do we know that this salvation is an eternal salvation for all those who repent and believe the gospel? It's because the same Jesus who perfectly obeyed the Father's will all the way to the cross didn't stay there. That's why we don't have crosses in our churches that have Jesus still hanging on them. It's because he's not on the cross anymore. Jesus, having been crucified, was buried only to rise again. And not just that, but then to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And now we know what he's doing there. He's serving as our great high priest. He's been appointed to this ministry by God himself, he says. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What's the significance of that? The significance of that is that Christ's ministry at the right hand of the Father is our continual guarantee that this salvation is, in fact, eternal and will never, ever be revoked. How can you and I have confidence that our salvation is eternal and that Christ will never take it back? It's his present ministry at the right hand of the Father, that he stands there as our great high priest continuing to minister and plead his blood on our behalf, that one-time sacrifice that was sufficient for all. Therefore, his continual ministry on our behalf is his presence there at the right hand of the Father so that he will intercede for us. And because he is there, we then have confidence to run to the throne of grace in prayer, as the author has told us to do. This is why... Paul would finish that famous passage in Philippians 2 that we read earlier with these words. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Understanding then and having explained the perfect life of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and the high priestly ministry of Christ, there remains only one response for us this morning. And that is you must bend your knee in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, he is God, he is master, he is the sovereign, eternal ruler over all. Friend, let me ask you pointedly this morning. Do you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is, in fact, none other than the divine Son of God who took on human flesh and did indeed live a perfect life without sin and then offered that life on purpose as a sacrifice to the Father to pay for the sins of his people, to rise again from the grave in victory over death, and that he's now at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you understand that you are a sinner and your condition as a sinner 
presents a problem for you because it separates you from a holy God. It puts you in need of God's forgiveness. It puts you in need of of payment for your sins. And that Jesus Christ is the only payment that the Father will accept. Understand that while the sacrifice of Christ is universally offered, it is exclusively applied to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to give up being the master over your own life and to bow your knee now in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and commit to follow after him? This is the good news of the gospel. This is what the author is saying has been made available to us like an eternal spring of living water. And it can be applied to you today if you would humble yourself in repentance and faith. Don't reject the greatest gift ever offered to us. It's exclusive, yes, in the fact that it's found in Jesus Christ alone. But it is for all of us who will come in true faith and repentance. But you know, if you're a believer this morning, there is a crucial application here for us as well. I just want to focus on, on one application, but I want us to think on it for a few moments. And it's this. Fan your faith into flame. Fan your faith into flame. We've had the privilege now for weeks of meditating on the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen this comparison and the superiority of his ministry over the ministry of the the priesthood. But understand that study has not primarily been simply to fill our minds with truth, but Having filled our minds with truth, it is to propel a change in our steps, a change in our heart. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian this morning, has your faith and love for Christ in some way grown cold? In what ways are you struggling this morning to allow your love and faith in Christ to result in obedience? If you want to know where has my heart grown cold, look at the areas of your life where you are stubbornly refusing or struggling to obey the will of Christ. You know, obedience to Christ's commands is really easy when his commands align with our desires, right? But the true test of our love for Christ is when we're willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ and say with a genuine heart, not my will, but your will be done. Let me give you some examples. So, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to read words in the scriptures like this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you when you currently don't have any enemies and no one's currently persecuting you. But what about when someone has truly mistreated you? I, I mean, mistreated you in a way that cuts to the core of your heart. What about when you've been falsely accused, misused, abused, pushed aside, and neglected. Then when you read the words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they, they have a different ring, don't they? They're a little more weighty. In fact, we might even go as far as to say that they seem in that moment to be a step too far. How can God call me to love and pray for that person when they have done to me what he knows they've done to me? And the answer is the same way he called his perfect son to go to a cross 
that was not truly earned by his life, but it was earned by ours to give the life he had earned for others. He called his own son to suffer what he didn't deserve for the benefit of those who actually deserved what he was suffering. You see, our strength comes from the one who stands at the Father's right hand, interceding for us and sympathizing with us. Think of another example. It's easy to trust that God is sovereign and good when you're healthy, when your plans succeed, and when your needs are provided for. But it's another thing entirely to hold on to your hope and comfort in the goodness and the sovereignty of God when your sickness has no cure, when your best intentioned plans fail, and when you find yourself in genuine need and you can't meet it. You know, when our lives turn out this way, suddenly we find it difficult to read things in the Bible like this, be anxious for nothing. And God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How can we possibly hold on to truths like these crucial truths that we need so badly in those moments when our circumstances seem to be screaming the opposite to us? The answer again is we turn our gaze to the great high priest who stands interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and suddenly the path towards obedience becomes clear because there stands one who ministers on our behalf, who knows what it is to be despised, who knows what it is to be rejected, who knows what it is to receive unjust treatment and we know one also who did it perfectly. And he not only offered that perfection in our place, but as we've seen together, he ministers there to us here. He not only purchased our salvation, but he is our help. When we so badly need to follow in his footsteps and we're struggling to find the strength to do it, we turn our eyes there and we remember that as our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. And so Christian, fan your faith into flame until it produces action. What do I mean by that? I mean look at the Lord Jesus Christ as we have looked at him in the text and you keep your gaze there and you stare at him and you call out to him and you pray to him and you confess to him, God help me, help my unbelief. I believe God, help my unbelief. Help me to follow you in the ways that I know you've called me to do but I'm struggling to do. I don't have the strength but I believe because you said in your word that you have the strength and you will not abandon me. You will not abandon me in salvation. You will not abandon me in life. Turn to Christ, Christian, and run to the throne of grace with confidence because you know you will be received because he stands there ready to receive you based upon what he has done, not based upon what you have failed to do. What a priest, what a savior, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on these truths, it's easy to get caught up in some of the theological discussion and some of the, the headiness of thinking on these things and forget that these truths are not here 
just for us to mentally sweat as we think on them. They're here to provide encouragement and motivation to run to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are everything that we are not, that you have done perfectly what we failed to do and still fail to do, and that you offer to us your righteousness because ours is so insufficient. Help us to trust you, God. Help us to trust you when we're on the mountain peaks of life and when we're in the valleys. Help us to believe your word even when our circumstances cause us to sinfully question it. Help us to push through those difficult days by choosing to believe that you are true and our feelings and our emotions are liars. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only save us eternally, but you help us now in the present tense, and you will continue to do so until you bring us home. May that motivate us to love you and to follow you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.